Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome back. Uh, back to our Friday morning series that uh, has been a great success. Uh, and uh, everyone has uh, been asking to have it back. So I appreciate that you're joining us, uh, hopefully having a, a good coffee. Uh, or maybe you're in the office already getting ready to see patients or you're in a school setting joining us uh, from somewhere in Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, uh, and maybe even California. So thank you and welcome back to our Friday sessions of our Ask uh, the Experts, which is led by Dr. John Shriver. And uh, usually we have a second guest. Uh, today we're going to have, I believe, a, is it a full hour, John, that we're having for, for his, uh, so it's just, since John has been away for all this time, uh, from, from this audience, he's been very busy working with us here at Connecticut Children's. Uh, you know, we will have a, a full session with him uh, and for you to ask questions for him and I uh, regarding uh, COVID-19 and everything around it. Before we begin, though, I, I, I think it, it is important to today to remember, uh, you know, it is September 11th, uh, and, uh, it, you know, it's 19 years. That's really remarkable, uh, that uh, day, which uh, I think all of us remember quite vividly. Uh, and, uh, you know, 3,000 Americans died that day on a single day. Uh, and, and now, uh, you know, we have about 190,000 Americans that have died as a result of this, this, this latest crisis. So, so what I'm going to ask of all of you in, on, on this September 11th is that we, we just take a, a, a few seconds pause to remember all those who have passed uh, in their memory uh, and, uh, and just think about them and, and, and all the families that have been affected by them for so many years. So we'll just take a moment of silence for, for them, please. Thank you. So now I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Schreiber to uh, give us all the information, the latest information, and then we'll have questions. Remember, the, there's a Q&A section uh, in, the, in your uh, webinar. Uh, please write the questions. I'll read them at the end, and whatever we cannot get to, John will be sure to respond to you via email or through the chat section. So thank you very much. And, and Liz, thank you for organizing this. Liz Anderson, who's here behind the podium, uh, and Stephen Phillip, who, uh, who get up really early to come here and get us ready. Uh, I think we're missing one light. That's why it looks a little darker on one side, uh, but that's okay. Um, John will look equally good with or without, with one light or two. So, John, if you can bring to the, your knowledge to the podium. Thank you, uh, Juan, and good morning to everyone. Um, uh, it is 9-11. I'm, I'm sort of uh, glad Juan had that moment to think because I was thinking, and my, my fervent uh, prayer and wish was that we learn to work together to solve our problems. You may remember there was a sense of unity after that horrible event, and uh, my hope is that we can redevelop our sense of unity as we solve our problems. Um, I think uh, I haven't been here a few weeks. Welcome back. Um, I wish I could come and say we're done, and this will be the last talk, uh, but it's not going to happen. Um, however, there is light at the end of the tunnel. It's my thoughts as we start the talk today is the cases in the United States are declining. We understand much better how to manage and support ill patients with COVID-19. Um, New England, uh, we are having a resurgence. I'm going to show you some data, but uh, community spread is still limited. Uh, we've done a good job, and if we continue to be vigilant, we can probably keep the resurgence to a minimum. And vaccine research is advancing quite fast, and clinical trials probably will yield a vaccine not before the election, but maybe by the end of the year, maybe by the first of next year. So um, we have to be realistic about that. Now, this is where we are in the United States. Uh, you can see that our new cases are declining and the deaths are declining, but I do want to point out the numbers, quite honestly, are still horrific. Uh, we're having almost 40,000 cases a day and the death rate's about 800 a day, and so 800 to 1,000. Uh, I find these numbers absolutely unacceptable. We know exactly what we need to do to reduce, the, reduce the new cases and the death rate, and we are not doing it across the country. I think we just need to be frank about that. Uh, this is where we are. It's improving, but not where it needs to be. Uh, to give you some perspective, um, you know, we tend to be inward looking these days, and I think we need to look outwards. Our neighbor to the north has managed COVID, and you can see uh, they got the curve down. Now they're still having pockets of resurgence and they're vigilant. But if you look at the numbers, we're 10 times as big as Canada, but we have 100 times the COVID-19 
cases and deaths. So I think no matter how you look at the perspective, as a developed country, we are not doing well with this pandemic compared to our peers in the world. Now, the Northeast continues to have low levels of community spread. This is New York. And you remember, really, New York was the origin of most of the cases in New England. It came up the Connecticut coast. And to everyone's credit, uh, the leadership and the citizens, um, um, this has continued to be uh, dramatically less. And the resurgence is mild right now in New York. And it's very important to us because we, you know, along the Connecticut coast, their commuter rail, and when we're right near that potential spread. So right now, it looks good for New York. And the deaths in New York are quite low. Um, and this is, again, great news for us regionally because this is the biggest population center for us. Uh, good news also is that the Southeast, when I left you a few weeks ago, the Southeast was the epicenter of new cases in the United States. This has dropped quite a bit. This is Florida, which is still a few thousand cases a day, but not 10 to 15,000 cases a day. So it's a big drop. It's not where it needs to be, but it's an improvement. Unfortunately, because we have no national policy and we have not instituted what we know works across the country, the epidemic has now shifted to the Midwest. So in North Dakota, for example, it's log phase increase in new cases, uncontrolled. Uh, now it's a small population, it's not thousands of cases, but for a small population, it's a very high number of new cases. So the epidemic has shifted to the Midwest uh, this is Iowa, which uh, actually had quite a few number of new cases today in, in 1,000 to 2,000. That started to go down, uh, but they never really conquered their first curve. So unfortunately, we're generating a lot of new cases in the United States, not from the Northeast, less from the South, but now from the Midwest. So unfortunately, the projections for total deaths, because of our uneven institution of public health policies that reduce new cases and deaths, the estimates have climbed. And the newest estimate, if we continue to futz along, uh, is almost 400,000 deaths by the time we manage to institute immunization and control this pandemic in the United States. Um, it's an astronomical figure. It exceeds the death rate from most of our wars. Um, and uh, I think it's something, uh, as Juan mentioned, I find sobering. Uh, each one of these deaths is an individual who had a family and loved ones. And um, this is a, a sobering number. And I think around all the political radio static right now, we need to focus on reducing this. I mean, this is what we do as a country. Uh, each person counts, and so uh, we need to work on reducing this potential death rate. Connecticut has done well this summer. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I know everyone, um, Massachusetts probably a little less well where I live, but reasonably well. You will see, however, we are having an uptick, and uh, I think this is predictable. We've opened up some of our businesses. The schools have just opened. There's more inter interface with people, but you can see we're climbing up and uh, it's slow and small, something that we will need to watch very closely and to become vigilant. We know there will be new cases as we open up a little bit. We need to watch it though, and we need to do very careful contact tracing and stay on top of this. So be vigilant. There is a small resurgence undergoing Connecticut. We're seeing it in Connecticut Children's. We have a number of new cases. Uh, so this is going to continue to climb a bit. We are lucky in that we have very few COVID-19 linked deaths. And part of that, I believe, is most of the new cases we're seeing now are in children and young adults. The nursing homes and the elderly are being better protected than they were in the first wave. Unfortunately, a lot of the new cases are in young adults and children. So again, we're gonna to need to watch this very closely. So where do I go for the fall to see the foliage? Probably you stay local because it looks pretty good locally. This is from a day ago, it changes. Um, uh, but uh, most of the rest of the country is probably in a great idea to visit right now and probably don't want to drive to Florida and things like that. Let's stay local. There are a couple of other places you could get on an airplane and um, safely go to. But in general, we're suggesting that we not travel to red areas and that we stay local this fall. Now, um, I, I do, I want to, a colleague of mine from North Carolina sent me this, um, this sign that was on a restaurant that had just opened. And uh, this is to reinforce the, the, I think, fact 
that public health measures are not political. Uh, they are designed to reduce infections and to reduce deaths. In this sign, I will read it because you may not be able to see it, but it caught my eye and my colleague uh, sent it to me twice. Um, mask required for service four times. Do not pout, do not whine, do not argue, do not harass the employees, do not spout conspiracy theories uh, or regurgitate misinformation you got from your dumb uncle on Facebook. This isn't political, it's basic health and safety. Do not choose to be the reason the rest of the world is laughing at us. So I, I had to put this out here because I think all of us are public health representatives as we go out and interface with parents and patients. People are nervous, they're getting mixed messages. We need to be consistent. Masks reduce spread, therefore we want you to wear one. I think it's, uh, it's not complicated. Uh, and it means that you have the potential of not infecting somebody and killing them. Uh, and that's not a libertarian concept, it's just a basic public health concept not to spread the disease. So I wanted to show this and once again reinforce this pandemic is not political, the virus does not care. Now influenza 2020 is hanging over our heads, what's gonna happen? We don't know yet what the impact of influenza will have in the coming months. We don't know what a co-infection would look like with COVID-19. We don't know clinically whether they're gonna look the same. I and mean, we, we sort of know what flu looks like, but it could be confusing. It's critical more than ever that we immunize all of our children and us and the providers and everyone get immunized, elderly, children, everyone, so that we can reduce the number of influenza cases to reduce the confusion. And that's why we need to be opportunistic. And, and we are recommending, it's usually it's October, we're recommending just if you, if you can get the shot into somebody, just do it, uh, don't wait. Now, I have some optimism for everyone and that this, these are data from the Southern hemisphere where it's winter now, where usually there's an influenza outbreak this time of year. And if you look at data coming from Chile, South Africa, New Zealand, the numbers of influenza cases are far less than normal. This is great news. This means that all of the um, masking and separation and physical distancing is actually preventing the spread of other respiratory viruses. And if we, do, if we find that our current model uh, also knocks down influenza numbers for us, that's gonna be very, very good news. And you can see here in Chile, there've been a thousand seasonal respiratory illnesses, mostly influenza, compared to 20,000 last year, enormous reduction. So we are optimistic that our continued physical distancing and masking and hand washing and all the preventive measures we're doing will also reduce influenza, but we'll have to see what happens. Can't promise that. The Connecticut schools are reopening. In fact, I barely got here in time because there were a lot of school buses I'd forgotten. And uh, um, there are many questions arising. There is very strong guidance online. I'll show you the website. Uh, from the Departments of Education and Public Health in Connecticut who are cooperating and creating a framework for districts uh, to open, giving them a lot of individual freedom, but also a framework with which to operate. It's somewhat decentralized, but there are generalized rules. We are engaged with that. A number of us sit on the committee and we've been giving suggestions, and I think um, this has not been in a vacuum. It's very public health oriented. I think they've done a good job. So. Um, we can't possibly cover every permutation of question that will come, but I will refer you to a portal. And I think after the talk, we'll also show you uh, various websites. If you pull up this um, site, there are frequently asked questions that the Department of Education and DPH have partnered to answer. And it's really quite good. You know, if a child is COVID positive, what do we do? You know, it tells you exactly what to do and, and uh, how long you would wait with symptoms and fever for not, lack of 24 hours, 10 days, gives you all that information. It's very good guidance for school nurses. We asked them to add uh, recently um, a sheet for all parents and school nurses telling them what testing centers will do children because not all of them will do that and that's gonna be given to everyone. So they've it, it really done quite a nice job. I'm sure there'll be questions and confusion, uh, but they're doing their best. Now, um, as we open schools, the national data show um, that more children are becoming infected with SARS-CoV-2. The American Academy of Pediatrics estimates 500,000 American children have now been infected. This is a grand experiment. 
to see the long-term effects of this coronavirus in children? We will find out. There have been 70,000 pediatric cases just since mid to late August. It's a huge number. We do not know how many MISI cases this will bring, this inflammatory disorder that's about a month after you get SARS-CoV-2 or a month or so. We don't know how many cases this is going to generate nationally, but it will generate inflammatory, multi-system inflammatory cases. And unfortunately, most of the vaccines in clinical trials are not being tested in children. And this is gonna have some potential impact for us as we try to move to the next stage for this pandemic early next year. Now, this is national um, multi-system inflammatory syndrome data from the CDC MMWR from this month. They collected the first wave, the data end in May. But it's very important data because the rest of the country, you're seeing a lot of infected children now. And you can see that the green line as acute COVID activity declined, the numbers of cases of kids with this inflammatory disorder rose dramatically. And uh, that was pretty typical. These, is the area, these are the areas where that we saw cases. And you can see that in the first wave, it was focused in the Northeast. We had the most cases of COVID. So we anticipate we're going to see pockets of a multi-system inflammatory disorder in children throughout the Southeast and Midwest in the coming months. So we'll have to keep watch. Um, I think we seem to have community spread under control in Northeast. We're less likely to see new cases where we are. Uh, but you're going to see cases in the rest of the country. So this is the epidemiology of the first wave that ended in late May. And the criteria that the CDC used to evaluate this was hospitalized patients. They had to be less than 21. The fever was more than a day. There was lab evidence of inflammation, more than two organs involved. And they had to have evidence of infection by PCR or antibody test. Or they allowed close contact to a COVID positive person in the prior month and that people were untested. It's hard to see, but I wanna see the black bar are any cardiovascular effect, and it was about 80%. So in this inflammatory disorder, uh, the virus is inducing cardiovascular system dysfunction. So um, I think it's, it's uh, really important to look at that black bar. That's a, that's a huge number, and um, it's a hint in the pathogenesis of this virus that we don't fully understand yet. Now there's new data on clinical presentation. This came out in JAMA just a week ago or so, and they collected what are kids looking like in the second wave. Uh, and uh, you can, it's pretty interesting, and I think it's important. You can see that about 55% have some systemic problem, and 30% had fever more than 38, but actually another 38% had low-grade fever. So between the two, 60% plus had some sort of fever. So, you know, that's something to think about. The schools so far have chosen not to screen for temperature. Um, that's one area where I actually might have screened for temperature. A headache was common, respiratory symptoms 60%, but it was often nonspecific cough, uh, rhinorrhea, sputum, uh, sore throat in 30%. So unfortunately, and gastrointestinal 18% had some GI complaints. So unfortunately, pretty nonspecific. Now, there are also new data um, coming out from uh, ophthalmologists who've seen ocular manifestations of kids with COVID-19. This comes from China. And actually, conjunctival discharge in documented cases, about 50%, 55%, had some sort of a conjunctivitis. So um, it's something to keep in mind if we see conjunctivitis and mild respiratory symptoms that it can actually be COVID-19. Good news, um, this is a very interesting study that just came out. Um, and this is from the first wave. They studied 18 women who had documented um, COVID-19 infection. They were PCR positive, they had, they had new, newborns, and they looked at their breast milk. Uh, and they found that only one breast sample was PCR positive and that PCR RNA did not replicate. So it did not represent infectious virus. So it looks like, um, that in this very small sample right now, breast milk does not seem to be a conduit for infection. This is good news, and we look forward to getting more data on this, but, but it's something that I think we can use for now. And it really um, 
supports what we're already doing in newborns who are born with COVID, separating them from the respiratory secretions of the mother, but allowing breastfeeding. There are a lot more young adults infected with SARS-CoV-2. Um, and uh, we are hearing the myth nationally that who cares, young people don't get sick. That's not correct. If you have a risk factor, uh, you're at high risk. And let me show you these data. So this is a risk factors of morbid obesity, high blood pressure and diabetes, which unfortunately a large number of young adults in the United States have. And you can see if you have two or more of those um, uh, comorbidities and you get infected with COVID, you have almost a 25% chance of NLA ending up on a ventilator and your death rate's around 7%. That's just enormous. Um, many, many, many full times uh, influenza. And so if we have young adults who have diabetes, morbid obesity, or hypertension, they need to be advised that they are high risk and we need to do all that we can to keep them from getting COVID. This is a group I would immunize early as well. So important data, uh, and again, just came out this week. It's data from Brigham and Women's, but it was national data. So they're light at the end of the tunnel. Let's focus on vaccines. I'm gonna to try to finish up at the half hour so that we have lots of time for questions. There are multiple vaccine candidates in clinical trials across the world. This is good news. There are novel as well as traditional technologies being used. There are likely several vaccines to be licensed next year. Data in children are very limited. In fact, I can't find any of the vaccine trials I looked, maybe they are, but I couldn't find pediatric data in any of them right now. So unfortunately, the timeline for vaccines has become politicized and is always uncertain, uh, but sooner is not always better for a vaccine. I'm gonna run through with you again. I know I did this last month, but I want everyone on the same page with this because I think all of us as providers, parents, whoever, we need to understand um, the pathogenesis and the vaccines and how they're being designed because we're gonna be asked to choose. And it's important we understand this. So this virus binds to the ACE2 receptor on endothelial cells and a lot of other tissues through the spike protein. You see that on, the, on my left. Then the virus it gets into the cell and the RNA is taken into the cell, the mRNA, and that's translated to proteins by the, parrot, by the, the host cell. And those proteins reassemble new viruses. And um, the major target for vaccines has been the spike protein to prevent binding and entrance of the virus into the cell. That's been the primary target. The first group of vaccines are going to be nucleic acid vaccines, and probably it's, let's stay away from DNA, it's going to be the mRNA in a lipid shell that, that translates to the spike protein, but just the naked RNA so that there's no virus with it, it's not infectious. The RNA is injected into the human, uh, and uh, the RNA is taken up by our cells and translated into protein, which in this case is spike protein, and then we make antibodies against that spike protein based on the RNA that was translated to the protein. Now, the challenge is this totally new technology for a widespread vaccine. It's been used in small niche areas. The challenge will be, even though you make the dose of the mRNA the same, you don't really know how much antigen is produced in each person. There's variability in how that's translated. So it creates an interesting dynamic that we've not worked with before in vaccinology and just something to be aware of. Now, the RNA vaccines are far along. The one we've heard the most about is Moderna, which is a company that's in a joint um, project with the National Institutes of Health with an RNA vaccine that's in a lipid container. Uh, the preliminary data looked good. It's in phase three clinical trials, and we do not know efficacy. We do not have full safety data yet. Uh, Pfizer, um, the Japanese, and uh, also there's a second one at Duke um, there are at least four different RNA vaccines that are in phase two or phase three clinical trials. Um, I would have no doubt that um, the Moderna vaccine would be pushed to be available in October. It's not ready yet. Um, we do not have enough data. And my bet would be the correct way to do it would be probably early next year when we have the full data from the 30,000 to 50,000 people who've been vaccinated. Now, the adenovirus vector vaccines are also important projects. There's um, replicating virus of an adenovirus that gets, you, you insert the genetics for this uh, 
uh, spike protein, the RNA, and the adenoviruses infects the human. You make a lot of antibody. Or non-replicating adenovirus, which is the one that most of the companies are using, and that is taken into the body. You make a lot of antibodies against the spike protein, but also against the adenovirus. Uh, and then you get good T-cell help, and you get antibodies made. Now, again, the challenge with this technology is that you make antibodies to the adenovirus uh, shell, even if it's non-replicating. So there is worry that if you gave this multiple times over a year, for example, or two years, that it wouldn't be very effective because you'd make so many antibodies against the adenovirus vector it would prevent uh, any activity. We don't know if that's correct, but it's a worry about the adenovirus vector vaccines. Unfortunately, uh, the major one that's far along is the UK vaccine, which uses a non-replicating chimp adenovirus, it's the University of Oxford vaccine. Unfortunately, two days ago, uh, the vaccine trial was put on hold due to an adverse outcome of transverse myelitis in one volunteer. Now, we don't know whether that was caused by the vaccine. It's 30, 50, 100,000 people are getting it, and transverse myelitis happens. So it could just be a random case. But it's also known that both adenovirus and SARS-CoV-2 can yield uh, transverse myelitis. There are a small number of cases with COVID-infected people who've gotten it. And there are definite cases linked to adenovirus in the past. So we do not know. This is being investigated. But I would say right now this casts a shadow on adenovirus vector vaccines, in my opinion. There is a Chinese vaccine that's very far along that's an attenuated uh, or kill, it's a killed whole cell virus um, vaccine. Uh, I don't know the immunogenicity data or the safety data. It's hard to get. But I will say there's a lot of anxiety about a whole cell vaccine based on the multi-system inflammatory disorder that children get, and would this induce an immune response that would be counterproductive in terms of too much inflammation? So we do not know. Um, this is a vaccine that's not being pushed hard in the United States. And finally, uh, actually, technology that I think will yield a vaccine that will be widely used is the recombinant spike protein vaccines. This uses the exact same technology as hepatitis B vaccine. You get the gene or the, the, uh, that encodes the RNA for the spike protein. It's grown up. You, you translate it, and it's grown up in yeast in the gallons quantities. You make a lot of purified recombinant spike protein. Actually, in the um, major one being used by Novavax, it's, it's in, inserted in nanoparticles as, it, as uh, making it more immunogenic. And it's just like hepatitis B vaccine, the antigen uh, causes antibody production and T cell help. So uh, this is far along. Um, there are a number of um, companies that are about to enter phase three clinical trials. Novavax is the one in the United States, and it's in Maryland. Uh, and um, I'm going to show you some data. Um, people are quite optimistic about this. This is the Novavax vaccine, recombinant spike protein uh, in nanoparticles. And if you look at the really high dots in the middle of the graph, uh, those are antibodies to SARS induced by two doses of this vaccine. It's very immunogenic. It's also both neutralizing antibody and antibody to the spike protein. And on the right, the blue, that is antibodies induced by native infection. Those were infected people. And in fact, this vaccine in two doses induces higher titer neutralizing and anti-spike protein antibodies than native infection does. So this is a very immunogenic vaccine, and there's tremendous promise. Now here also, this is the anti-spike protein, which is better than you get with infection. The other one was neutralizing antibodies. So uh, there's a lot of excitement about this, and, um, and I think this vaccine will be very promising uh, in the new year as well. But remember, they're just starting phase three clinical trials, so that's going to take several months. Testing updates. PCR is still a gold standard. It's remarkably sensitive and specific. However, NP swabs are probably not required. Throat and saliva may suffice, and we are actually using throat when we have the right probes. We use that when we can. So I think there's going to be evolution in the PCR to make it easier to be done. The rapid ELISA sensitivity test, which is a 15-minute test, lags. It's the Abbott test. It's only about 70% although it's very specific. If it's positive, it's a true positive, but you're going to miss some cases. We don't know what role that's going to play, and unfortunately, the U.S. government bought up hundreds of millions of these test kits, so they haven't really been available. Some have recently been released, 
So we're going to learn how this uh, rapid ELISA uh, plays out in the next uh, few months, uh, you know, whether it's an important role or not. There is combined influenza and COVID PCR testing in a single cartridge that's available, but supplies are very limited right now for that. So uh, this is where we stand for testing. Now, this is a nice study just came out from Yale, uh, you know, literally New England Journal this week. And it shows that saliva was just as good as NP swabs for PCR. And that basically the dots are the same. You can see that. And in fact, on the top where you see some black bars going up to the blue dots, it shows that saliva was actually a little bit better than NP swabs. And the theory behind that is it's hard to get a good NP swab and sometimes they're not very good and, and saliva is just easier to get. So it looks like saliva in the hands of a very good laboratory is just as good as an NP swab. This is already moving ahead with ideas of could we do a home test, you'd mail it in and you'd, you, within 48 hours you could get the test back. So I think, stay tuned, we're going to have easier testing probably at home in the near future, but not yet. So the good, the bad, and the ugly um, on 9-11-2020. Our cases are declining in the United States, and we are blessed by a lot of hard work that the Northeast and New England remain stable. We are having upticks, but at the moment, there's low community transmission. We're in good shape. We're going to have to watch it carefully. However, we remain the developed country with the highest infection rate the largest number of deaths and the most community spread of any developed nation in the world. And we have uneven resurgence in geographic areas that are not doing common sense public health maneuvers that the rest of the country has done to break the curve. School reopenings will lead to more cases. We know that will be happening. We're just going to have to manage it and be careful, have lots of testing and lots of rules. And um, hopefully we'll be able to manage that. And vaccine research is extremely promising. There will be setbacks, as we saw this week, but there are several vaccine technologies that have yielded potential vaccines, and I remain optimistic, probably February or March, that there could be a licensed vaccine that all of us are comfortable, safe, and effective. Thank you very much for your attention today, but we're going to move to questions, which I'm sure there are plenty, so we left time. Thank you, uh, John, uh, once again, for an outstanding presentation and update with some, uh, like you said, some good news, some bad news, you know, the, uh, across the spectrum. And uh, so we, we do have a, a number of questions, and thank you for joining us. We have about 200 people that have uh, welcomed you back to, uh, to the, the, the airwaves. Uh, the first one is a, from one of our pediatricians, Dr. Blummer. Please describe what is considered an exposure to the coronavirus and whether the definition includes wearing masks or not wearing masks. So an exposure would be 15 minutes or more, take a time period. If you have a mask, but you're next to an unmasked positive COVID and you have no eye protection, if you're there for more than a few minutes, that's probably an exposure. Uh, if you have an unmasked COVID positive person you didn't know about and you have eye protection and you have a mask and you have gloves and you're in PPE and it's less than a few minutes, we would then probably monitor you. We would not necessarily quarantine if you were in full protective gear. So it depends on the situation. It's a good question, um, uh, uh, but it depends on the situation and the protective gear that you are wearing. Yeah, thanks, John. And then for, for Connecticut Children's members, and there are many on this call, um, if you know of a potential exposure, uh, we, we go through Sue MacArthur, uh, and who connects with, with John and Hank Fader and myself, and, and then we, we do a, Sue is wonderful at doing a very close investigation. Uh, she actually interviews everyone and makes a determination of, of exposure uh, based on, on, on that close contact. Uh, in, in some cases, we, have, uh, we also have video in many places in Connecticut Children's that allows us to go back and assess potential exposure. So this is something that will be, uh, you'll hear more and more about, but it's, uh, it's a very good question. And Juan, I want to add one thing. Uh, one of the questions I'm getting in a family gathering, uh, someone turned out to be COVID positive the next day, for example, but everybody wore masks and they were all physically distanced and it was outside. That's a low risk exposure, one in which that's why we do that. You're unlikely to have acquired it from that positive person who's six feet away from you wearing a mask outside. So again, each of the questions comes in a little bit different. And by the way, we, we have a, we, the ID group has two people on call at all times. One of us takes the inpatient and ambulatory, and one of us takes COVID call. So if questions come up, 
call us. Uh, we're on call to take those questions during the day. So, Absolutely. Thank you, John. Uh, from Kerry Strine, uh, uh, thank you for coming back. Uh, so many questions, so little time. Now that school has restarted, the need for testing children will increase dramatically. It hasn't been easy to find a series of sites to test young children, especially east of the river. Uh, any chance that Connecticut Children's can open testing sites, it would be great to just say to parents, go to Connecticut Children's for testing. I'll let you answer that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Carrie, uh, currently we're, we're not, uh, through our drive-through facility, we're not planning on, on making it or opening it for uh, the general pediatric public. Um, we are looking at uh, some limited testing for uh, uh, for staff members' children that may uh, that you know that may actually require such testing, and and as uh, testing becomes available, we'll certainly do it. I do want to point out that we we did open our new urgent care um, located in Farmington, uh, and uh, we are offering for those kids who need to be seen for a clinical illness. Uh, we will be offering COVID testing at our urgent care. So that's just one additional thing to you. And go on our website. It's really a fantastic and beautiful location that can serve you, uh, the pediatricians, in the after hours so that uh, this is not to compete with you. It's to provide additional service for what you need. And, and we will be doing COVID testing as well as influenza testing and everything else that comes with that. So thank you for that question, and you'll hear more about it in the, in the coming days. Um, another question, a few parents in my practice are asking for a letter from me to mask exemption. Uh, what do you think about mask, mask exemptions to go to school, John? Well, um, I, I think I've, I feel pretty concretely about it. There are no medical indications to prevent mask wearing except someone with an anatomic defect. There are certain jaw and anatomic defects where masks would be difficult. Pierre Robin, for example. Those are vanishingly rare patients. Asthma is not a contraindication to wear a mask. And so we basically say to parents, unless there's some extremely unusual anatomic or physical challenge, that masks have no medical reason not to be worn. Now, I will say that children with autism spectrum sometimes have difficulty with that, and we have to work with those patients and find alternatives. So that is one area where those children may have difficulty with masks. But in general, there are no medical contraindications. And I do think I've gotten lots of calls about that. And um, honestly, I think we just need to be consistent about it. Um, uh, you saw the poster in that restaurant. I mean, it's just has reached the point of ridiculousness. And I, I will say, someone mentioned this to me the other day. Um, I went to the ophthalmologist and, uh, and uh, it was everyone's in PPEs and stuff. And, and he was just shaking his head. He was about, our, he was elderly. You know, our parents landed in Normandy and, and they didn't have butter and there was no gas and everything was rationed. And here we are, just put on a mask and, and, and it's, it's some kind of affront. So I, I have, it's reached the point where the data are so good and so many people have died uh, that I think we just need to be honest. There is no way reason not to wear a mask. Please do so. And just be firm about it in my opinion. I, I agree, John. That's absolutely correct. Uh, from uh, Murray Luxemburg, uh, what is the current usefulness of the rapid test for COVID given the low positivity rate in Connecticut? Uh, you know, you're talking about the ELISA test, I assume, that has about... And, a, and I think this is an antigen-based... The antigen-based, yeah. the ELISA test. So, you know, it's about 70% sensitive, and, and I think um, it might have some utility uh, if you were surveying uh, a school and you wanted to see. I, I, at the moment, though, because we have such good availability of PCR that's so sensitive and specific, I don't know what the niche for that is. We're not using it at Connecticut Children's um, for that very reason. I don't know, Juan, if you have another opinion about it, but right now, I don't know. Yeah, at, at the, uh, there was a recent test that was uh, felt to be very sensitive and specific uh, unfortunately, you, we tried to get it for Connecticut yeah. Children's, and by the time we, uh, we placed the order, the, uh, many of the testing sites had already been commandeered, and so it was not even available. Right. Uh, that, so that was the, uh, the doses bought by the U.S. government. Yeah, so. exactly. And, and I, I don't know that one that's more sensitive that just came out, I don't know how it's been validated. I haven't seen those data. So right now, in, in the reality of our day-to-day -day operations, it's not a, playing a big part. Uh, uh, from Rebecca Moles, uh, the 70,000 cases in children since late August uh, presented as linked to school reopening. How much is that number affected by increased testing availability in August versus March, April, especially as testing for children is very hard to get in the community? 
I think um, uh, backing up that 70,000 was really uh, mid-August to now, so a lot of the schools hadn't opened. So I don't think it's all linked to schools. There's no question some of it is linked to improved testing, but it's coming from states that had a really high percent positive. Florida, for example. So you know a lot of those kids were in Florida. You know that it's not just extra testing, that in general we have more children being infected. So. I think it was a broad base coming from the southeast at the time. Um, I think you're going to see that moving to the Midwest now, where there'll be more children in that um, area being infected. I think school is playing a part, but those data were gotten before all the schools had reopened. A lot of it was from the southeast, and there was just um, a, a lot of uh, community spread in those areas. So the percent positive was quite high. It's not just the testing. Yeah, just to an additional comment, John, I think where, where the schools have played a role is the colleges and universities. Right. And in that setting, I think we have ample evidence as, yeah. as the colleges open and the parties begin, yeah. there is community spread without any doubt. Uh, and you can see that in every city that has a major university, they have a spike in cases. Right. And, you know, one of the things I think the kids don't fully understand that is that graph of risk factors and how young adults don't necessarily do so great. Uh, with this disease. So I, unfortunately, we haven't been good at educating our college students on that. Um, the next question from Ed Zellneritis, uh, is the Missy case incidents underreported uh, due to the lack of recognition by providers? Ed, it's a great question. And repeating it, so, uh, you know, the CDC in the first wave, you saw the data, maybe 100, 150 cases, seems sort of low. You know, it's a squishy case definition, and I think it's definitely possible that there were mild cases that weren't reported, um, or frankly, subclinical cases where they were inflamed but uh, didn't get sick enough to end up in the ICU. So I suspect that's correct, but I can't prove that to you. I think we're better at it now, and unfortunately, we're going to get the opportunity in the second wave that sweep, swept the Southeast and now the Midwest. We'll be able to see that. But I, I, I suspect you're right, Ed. Um, the slide with five clinical criteria applies to COVID-19 as well, uh, and why include 18 to 20-year-olds as children? It appears as if this will capture young adults with COVID-19 without Missy. That's just what the CDC decided to do when they, they bucketed those data and presented it to the public or to us. So I can't answer that, but the CDC chose to include those young adults in the case definition. How about loss of taste and smell in children as a symptom list? Are we checking? It was more common than fever in the older population. Uh, I would definitely check in children who are able to report it. Obviously, a very young child may not be able to accurately tell you, but I think in children who can, I absolutely would use it as a potential symptom, and I would consider sudden loss of taste and smell in a six-year-old who told you that uh, as a very, very suspicious sign of COVID. From Neil Stein, another one of our pediatricians, how many children with COVID-19 or what percentage of children with COVID-19 have temperatures above 99.5 alone as opposed to 100.4? Uh, I don't know the exact answer to that, but I will say you saw the data that, you know, there were a lot of kids with low-grade temps in there who later ended up having COVID, but there are a lot of kids with low-grade temps who don't have COVID. So that's why temperature, uh, CDC has not pushed temperature as a school reopening screening test because kids come off the school bus all bundled up and might be 99.5 until they, you know, the bus was overheated. Um, so I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but clearly a good hunk of kids will be febrile. So. So related to that, uh, it, it, somewhat related to that, if, if testing shows a positive uh, SARS-CoV-2 rate of 1% of test taking, um, would we close schools? I guess the question is, at what percentage would we, as infectious disease providers, recommend perhaps closing a school? It's a great question. Um, One percent seems a little low. I know uh, I just heard the governor this morning. I think they're actually doing um, numbers of cases, more than 100 and this and that. Each state's a little bit different on when they're going to close a university when there are a lot of cases. So. I don't know if 1% is the right number, 2% or 10%. I do know to Juan's earlier point, the potential to spread among late teenage, early adults uh, who are in college is extremely high. Uh, we've already seen that in state after state. Um, and uh, I think the response that I think is the best response is you keep them there, don't send them home to infect your people at home keep them there, quarantine them there, separate them there, wait 14 days to kind of get that under control in your college community. 
that seems to be the most efficacious way to manage outbreaks in the colleges. So. Yeah, that's correct. Just an example from a home base. Uh, my son is uh, at a Midwestern school where they had a, uh, the positivity rate within a 10 days of opening uh, of testing, and they're doing a lot of testing, was about 20%. So they, they went virtual, but they kept everyone at the school. Uh, they reopened uh, two and a half weeks later with the testing. The positivity rate, rate went down to one to two percent. So it actually worked, but they did not send them back. So that's a, that's one of the ways to do it. You really can do that in high schools and, and middle schools and elementary schools. Uh, uh, John, uh, what type of eye protection should we recommend? Um, shield, protective glasses, plain prescription glasses, and what's the efficacy? Yeah. I think um, it depends on your role. Uh, if you are seeing suspected uh, sick children who could have COVID, um, I think you need uh, face shield, uh, your, your mask, your PPE, obviously, and you need a face shield uh, to um, protect yourself. I think if you're seeing well children, um, then uh, the eye protection of your choice, goggles are best. Uh, there are glasses now that have attachments. Your prescription glasses can have an attachment that seals the sides in that gives you better protection. So for low risk, well type patient care, we're suggesting universal eye protection, but very, you know, you can have a little wiggle room in what you choose to use. Anybody who's sick or there's high risk, it's full PPE and face shield. Um, also, uh, another question, how do you suggest pediatricians handle the return to school clearance for students who, or daycare attendees who have a URI symptom or fever and have either had negative COVID tests or not been tested. Yeah, it's actually on the state website. They, they have that all worked out. Um, and, and they're going by CDC criteria. Your test negative, you have a URI, you're afebrile for 24 hours and you don't have symptoms, you can go back to school. What if they're not tested? Um, then you're assuming positivity. That's what you have to do. And it's 24 hours, no fever, and 10 days from the symptoms, and you have to be symptom-free. It's actually on the website for the state. It's just CDC criteria, and I think it, it's pretty reasonable. And, and the question that we've been asked, John, is um, so no testing a kid with a provider uh, who's one of our providers or a pediatrician. Um, what do we do with that provider without a test? Well, I, I, that, then we just say test your kid. Uh, I think that, that is sort of my response. But yeah. Test your kid, otherwise you'll be quarantined. So and if your child's negative, we don't have to quarantine you. So I think when in doubt, particularly in a school district, if someone's sick and they follow some of those COVID potential symptoms, I'd have them tested. But uh, it's all on the website, and it's just straight CDC criteria of, of if it's negative, it's 24 hours, no fever, you're symptom-free. And if it's positive or suspected, you've got 24 hours of no fever, but 10 days since your symptoms Yeah, are. and, that, and no. that's where we, we will be uh, standing up uh, our ability to test the kids uh, of those providers so we can actually get them back to work. And uh, so we'll work with the pediatricians as well. Uh, Dr. Tynan, Dara Tynan just reminded me that, uh, that Connecticut Children's is looking at a mobile testing unit that hasn't been launched yet. Um, and so we're looking at that, obviously, uh, you know, we'll inform you as soon as we have that. And we're working with DPH also in terms of licensing. So hopefully we can stand that up. Um, can you, uh, from uh, John Pitigoff, uh, can you discuss ventilation and changing of indoor air? <laughs> Yeah, it's a great question. And in fact, I just got called um, by a practice that has a, an office where there is no ventilation. It's in an old building and, and the HVAC doesn't really turn the air over. And, and um, in our opinion, we suggested that they not see sick children in one of those rooms and that they do the parking lot maneuver or telemedicine first and evaluate the child. If the child needs to be seen, they're seen outside or referred into urgent care uh, or emergency room. And that's why I think the opening of our urgent care center should really help the community in these situations. I think if you know you have good air exchange, then you would use standard precautions. You would have a well day and you'd have a sick day and you could bring in sick children that day. You know the air exchange, you'd wait 15 minutes between sick patients, the room is cleaned, another patient brought in, you're in PPE. So I think, um, it's important for us to evaluate our buildings and, and what that is and what kind of air exchanges you are having. But a lot of the older offices don't have very good air exchange and we need to be careful there. From uh, Ching Lao, the, the drop in influenza cases reported in Chile that you showed could be attributed to masking by the public. So even with, when the COVID-19 pandemic is under control with vaccination, should we still recommend universal masking during flu season? Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, we can't even get people to wear masks <laughs> in a pandemic, Ching. So. 
I don't know how we're going to get people to wear masks for influenza. It's a great, it's a great point. You know, if we can, if we can defeat the flu by just being careful, uh, maybe we need to do that. Let's see how our flu season unfolds before I make that suggestion and, and generate even more churn about masks. But it's a good thought, Ching. Thank you. It's a great. Ching is always questioning us. It's always good. Um, and that's what they do in, in, in Hong Kong, by the way. Uh, from Nina Livingston, what is known about the rate of mutation of the spike protein and what are the implications of the vaccine efficacy over time? You know, it's a great question. Um, I think in an earlier talk, I showed you that there, there is a mutation that's already occurred that uh, increased infectivity, actually, uh, and that swept the world. And they were able to track that um, uh, from, you know, where it went across the world. Right now, I'm not aware of spike protein mutations that would render any of these vaccines um, ineffective because they're using a fairly larger molecule that has multiple epitopes of the spike protein, and you're going to make antibodies to a variety of those surface antigens. So right now, I think the spike protein strategy looks like it's going to work. But it's a great question, and would future mutations render some vaccine ineffective? We'll just have to watch, just like we do for influenza. Right now, it doesn't seem like that's going to be a problem. Uh, a comment from Diane Powers, one of our APRNs. Uh, uh, just FYI, we, we are testing children and adults at CHC 76 New Burton Avenue, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. It's a drive-through. That's uh, so another location for children. Fantastic. And, and we, I know on our website, we try to gather all the pediatric locations that will do kids. Maybe that's something we can update. Yeah, and we'll, actually, and we'll send that out. We'll send it out again so people yeah, we'll have that. We'll send it out. So. We'll update it because it looks like there are a couple of new, new testing sites for kids. Great. That's a great question. Um, uh, again, again, about masking, uh, and I've gotten this question before, kids with, uh, with autism, a four-year-old, five-year-old with autism who simply, in that case, will rip the mask off. Um, recommendations? I think um, two, one recommendation is you try to use a face shield, which is not what we would normally want to do, but there are kids who will tolerate face shields but not masks. That's one option. The other option is then you're going to need to cohort uh, that child as a higher-risk child with other kids who perhaps also can't wear masks and uh, make sure that they're not exposed to larger cohorts of children. So there is no silver bullet answer for that. It's going to have to be managed on an individual basis to reduce the risk both to the autistic child and to the other peers around. You don't want to get them infected as well. So there'll be permutations for each, but keeping them separate from other kids or face shields might be an option. Is plexiglass without a mask adequate for teachers? in school settings. They have a lot of schools that have the plexiglass separation, but not I the mask. personally, again, I, I have not seen the data comparing plexiglass with or without a mask. I don't think it exists. I would wear a mask. Um, I think plexiglass is a piece of plastic and there will be aerosolization around it and it would make sense. And in addition, if the teacher happens to be infected, wearing a mask at all times would prevent risk to the students. So again, I don't think plexiglass removes the need to wear a mask for the teacher in my opinion. And, and what about if the people, the kids are wearing masks, but they're not six feet apart? I think that's going to happen in schools, and we do the best we can do. Let's be realistic. Um, the masks will help. Uh, they may not be six feet apart, and they may touch each other. They need to wash their hands frequently. That needs to be done on a routine basis in the classroom. Oh, now it's time to wash everybody's hands. We can only do the best we can do and then anybody who's sick is kept out, and we do a lot of testing. I think that's where we are with this. From Mary Simon, uh, will epidemiological screening tests for private pediatricians be available soon from Connecticut Children's? Do you recommend pediatricians screen themselves regularly on a monthly basis? I, I, you know, if you're symptom-free, um, uh, we do not recommend routine screening. Um, uh, of providers. We have not been doing that. Obviously, any symptoms at all, don't go to work, get tested. Um, or exposure to a known case, even if you feel well, don't, you know, manage that. Uh, we have not been routinely screening employees monthly in a time frame, and I don't think their data suggests that would be useful. All you're going to get is a test for that day. And if it's negative, I don't know what that means. 
Yeah, I think where the the routine or random screening works is in colleges, right. uh, and that it's a different crowd, a different because yeah. you you know again they're mixing and mingling, and generally the, pedi the pedi pediatricians are not, uh, although they are seeing patients. From uh, you know, but that's a uh, Juan, that's a, an important point, and actually um, I've gotten some calls up from private schools who are like colleges because they're coming from all over. These are boarding schools, and I've gotten a couple of questions, and, and that's a good point, uh, Dr. Salazar. I think that in that situation where they've come from all over and they're, they're staying in a boarding school, uh, screening everyone may, be, may have utility when they first come in and, and periodically. But other than that, we've not been doing it. So from uh, Dr. Segul, uh, as part of our clinically integrated network, and Richard asks, what do you think of the usefulness of the pediatric offices acquiring and using the in-office machines like Abbott QuickRD or the or Cepheid for testing for sick children with COVID-like symptoms? Uh, I don't know what the latter is. So. Well, it's the uh, Abbott is one of the. Is, I think it's uh, an, an, antigen-based. Right. Uh, yeah. Cepheid is a is a PCR. Yeah. Oh, Cepheid. I mean, if you have an office-based PCR and you're able to afford and run that, and you can get the cartridges, uh, you a nice testing site will be. But we can't get the, we we've, we've we haven't been able to get the cartridges. Yeah, we have a back order of six so, months, and no one. Uh, if you can get them, um, uh, we'll send you patients. You can be a testing site. We'll, um, yeah, we'll send you providers. Right. Also. Uh, I, I think the again the Abbott Elisa may very well be released, um, and and it, it maybe the sensitivity's gotten better and it'll be broader use in the practices. Right now, it's it's we just don't know. Will the state panel that you're. Uh, you're unprepared, a hard guideline to protect teachers in the school. You know, I, I have to tell you, there's pages and pages of stuff on that link. Um, and our input has been advisory only, very limited advisory only. But the DPH has been heavily involved. I don't know what it says for teachers. Uh, I urge you to go look because it's very comprehensive. And there may very well be a big section on teachers there. I do think all of us are very conscious that um, some of the adults teaching children are high risk of getting very sick. We are very uh, want to be very careful about that. And that's one of the reasons that we are here uh, at all times to give advice uh, and to make sure we can make people as safe as they can be. So it is a concern. I'm almost sure that the various documents from the Department of Education DPH deal with that. From Alex Hogan, who was always asked uh, intuitive questions and likes epidemiology and statistics, uh, challenging the assertion that the antigen test lacks utility with low community prevalence, even with suboptimal sensitivity, the negative predicted value is very good. Therefore, kids could get back to school daycare if, if they have an antigen test, uh, because parents will be flooding PCP offices with allergies and sniffles. You know, again, it's, it's a great point, um, but we don't have enough kits to really act on that. So they've not been in adequate supply. So uh, I certainly, I would be interested in starting a pilot and uh, looking at whether these kits are useful in our community and, and following and tracking it. But at the moment, we haven't been able to get them. Um, the other challenge we had, we wanted to operationalize some of that um, new testing uh, in our laboratories. And there's a lot of regulatory hurdles in that one of the tests um, in their packet requires that a negative have a follow-up PCR. So in my view, that removes the utility of that test. That's actually the, the pharma company says that you have to do follow-up PCR to document whether it's truly a negative. And, and if that's going to happen, then we're going to be doing PCRs and all the negatives. That, that, that's not very helpful. So it's complex. And, and, and it hasn't been as easy just to get those elicits going in a highly sensitive way as we would like. Great question uh, or comment from Amanda Begley. Do, uh, do, and it's a question and a comment. Do autistic children get in cars without a seatbelt? Obviously, the answer is no. Um, if we make the norm an expectation and slowly work with these children, I think many, capitalized, uh, maybe not all, would be able to wear their masks. So that's a great comment. I think it's a great comment. It's the ideal response uh, to this challenge would be to work with the child and see whether we can get mask compliance. It's a great comment. Thank you. Um, Gary Strym, and then we just have a couple of more minutes for questions. Uh, many of us practice in small offices. Would, would you recommend that all the staff, including administrative staff, start wearing uh, eye shields, goggles at all times? I think um, any provider or staff that is in contact with a patient for more than a few minutes should have eye protection. I think if you're sitting behind a glass barrier and introducing patients and telling them in the waiting room where they're going and this kind of thing, um, that that's probably not necessary, but any provider or staff member who is around um, a particularly an ill patient 
for more than a few minutes. Perhaps you bring them in a room and you have to sit with them for a minute while you take their temperature. Wearing, wearing eye protection might be useful. Um, are, the, are the no contact infrared thermometers accurate? And, and uh, this uh, Amy uh, Handler reports that they had a patient yesterday who was 98.2 by non-contact and 102.5 by ear. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, you guys, uh, I will say these Friday morning sessions keep me on my toes. I don't have to look that up. I don't know. Well, you know? I, 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 studies have been done, and clearly the, you know, it, the ear, ear temperature is very accurate if, if you can do it correctly. Um, but for screening, it's just not, it's not feasible. I mean, that's part of the problem. And so, but I agree, it's not, it, this is, these are the challenges that we will have. And the other thing I might add, I, I've heard from some people that some of these things are defective. And so it might yes. be useful to check an alternative um, uh, one and see whether you get the correct temperature with it. I would just have one time for one more question. Um, uh, and it's more of a comment as a school nurse, she tried to listen while at work. <laughs> Um, that was not effective. And so could, could this be posted soon so I can listen to it again? I believe this becomes a podcast, uh, which is accessible. Uh, so we will post that on the, uh, on the chat here, the web that you can go in. So yes, you can listen to John at uh, 8 p.m. tonight after dinner while you're having a glass of wine, and, um, and uh, you can listen to him over and over again. So thank you for that question. Uh, from Rob Ketter, in developmental pediatrics, we're encouraging families of children with autism to work with their school special educators and ABA providers to do mask training. Many children with autism are making progress. So thank you, Rob, Another for, great for comment that comment. Of how I to really appreciate that. it. Thank you. Uh, that's it for today. It's 9.01. Uh, thank you for joining us, about 200 of you. Lots of great questions. Uh, we will continue to work with you, provide information, Dr. Shriver. Uh, I'm glad you're wearing your mask again. We'll and, see you next and, week, and everyone. We'll, so. we'll see you in about a week and every Friday moving forward until you tell us that we don't want us anymore. All right, take care. All right. Be good. Be safe. Bye-bye.